Let's go ahead and take our seats. You can open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to be. At least that's where we're going to start. Let's stand as the scripture is read. This morning's reading comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. And pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Curse is the ground because of you. And pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A little while ago, Babylon B had an article called New Bible Interpretation Goggles now available. Nashville, Tennessee, Lifeway Christian Resources announced Monday that its long-awaited Bible interpretation goggles are now available, allowing Bible readers to interpret the text through whatever theological system or framework they are comfortable with. The goggles are available in a variety of worldviews and preconceived notions. Let's say you're reading, quote, let's say you're reading a passage that seems to suggest that baptism is for believers only, but you're a Presbyterian. A representative demoing the goggles said, just make sure your lenses are set to the covenant theology framework. And the passage appears to alter itself on the fly, hiding any language that might challenge the idea. The idea. No more pesky changing your worldview to fit the text. Now the text will change to fit your worldview. The rep then demonstrated the settings for dispensationalism, Pentecostalism, cessationism, Calvinism, and Arminianism, with the goggles completely obliterating or heavily modifying in real time any passages that challenge those frameworks. Calvinists will find a fresh new reading of John 3.16. For God so loved the elect. Well, Arminians will find that the book of Romans skips directly from chapter 8 to chapter 10. The device is being, uh, being called a breakthrough with dozens of prominent theologians on various sides of major issues endorsing the set of interpretation glasses. It's a whole new way to read the Bible, one megachurch pastor said. According to Lifeway, the initial production run of the goggles sold out almost immediately. Well, if you didn't know, Babylon B is a, is a, is a spoof website. Uh, and they poke fun at Christians and Christian things. And so in this case, they're poking fun at the way 
we can sometimes force the Bible to do what we want it to do. And so we don't want interpretation goggles like what they're talking about. We don't want interpretation goggles that, that uh, help cause us to look at the Bible through a few ideas that we might have, and we, instead of changing what we believe to, uh, according to the Scriptures, we change the Scriptures according to what we believe. So we don't want interpretation goggles, but there's this other idea where we do need a set of lenses through which we see our Bibles. We just need the right lenses. The best lens through which to see your Bible is the Bible. Let the Bible teach you how to interpret the Bible. Now this morning, our, our topic is the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace and the promise of Christmas. That's our title. The covenant of grace and the promise of Christmas. And there would be some who think this, this idea of a covenant of grace is actually a, is an interpretation goggles kind of idea. It's not there. That you're just conforming the Bible to your own interpretive framework. But I hope, I hope by the end of the sermon you realize that this idea is, is solidly in our Bibles. Now, I don't mean the literal phrase covenant of grace, because like the word trinity, the word covenant of grace, or the phrase for covenant of grace is not actually in our Bibles. But it's, it's a way of, it's a framework through which to put some ideas which are clearly, clearly in our Bibles. In fact, these are, these are just straightforward gospel ideas, very familiar ideas. But in Reformed tradition, this is uh, often uh, described as the covenant of grace. Our series, our sermon series in Genesis is called Right from the Start. Things were right at the start, and then in the early part of chapter 3 of Genesis, things went horribly wrong. And now we're going to see what God did after things went horribly wrong. Because after Adam ate from the fruits, Eve was tempted Adam ate from the fruits, things could have gone a lot of different directions. The story could have ended right there. God promised death to those who sin. The story could have ended right there, but it didn't. And so now we're going to see what God did uh, immediately after the fall. So we're looking at what I, said, uh, what I said is the covenant of grace. That's our topic this morning. God's promise to save all who trust in him. Point one is going to be the covenant of grace and the promise of Christmas. Point two, the covenant of grace from the garden to Gabriel. Remember, Gabriel's that angel who announced John the Baptist's birth and then Jesus' birth to Mary. So the covenant of grace from the garden to Gabriel, and then the covenant of grace and the advent of Christ, the actual coming of Christ. Right there. Let's pray. Father, we, we give you praise for a complicated Bible because it reminds us that you are an infinite God and that apart from your revelation, we're not going to understand what's in your word. And so we do praise you for it. And as we think about uh, these complex and yet simple things, we pray that you would, you would give us clarity as Bible interpreters. We pray that we would see, see in the clearest form your gospel, your gospel of grace, your offer of mercy to all who believe in you. That simple promise that runs, runs throughout every single page of our Bibles. Lord, let us just see that. And if we're confused by the details on any given page of our Bibles, let us still see that offer of mercy to all who trust in you. And we pray that today people would hear that, that offer of mercy to those who trust in you, maybe for the first time, and respond to it with saving faith. Be reconciled to you and live forever as your child. 
Be glorified with our time this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The covenant of grace and the promise of Christmas. So we need to remember a couple things from last week. We talked about the covenant of works last week, and I gave a definition for, for a covenant last week. This is that same definition, maybe just slightly modified after another week of thinking about it. A divine covenant is this. A divine covenant is where God, in a solemn oath, which just means in a, in a significant point in history, in a sober manner, where God, in a solemn oath, defines a specific new relationship with his people. In these covenants, because there are, there are more than one covenant, and, uh, there's more than one covenant in the Bible, in these covenants, there are promises, and there are conditions for receiving blessings and curses. These covenants don't happen often, these kinds of divine covenants that we're talking about here. There's a lot of human covenants, so David and Jonathan covenant together, uh, Abraham and Abimelech covenant together, uh, certain agreements or treaties between different armies and peoples. But these divine covenants, these significant solemn moments in salvation history don't happen often. They're major, and when one happens, the way that people relate to God changes, or the way that God relates to people changes. So we've talked about the covenant of works last week with Adam. We're going to talk about the covenant of grace, which is also made with Adam. In a few weeks, we'll talk about Noah. There's a covenant made with Noah, very significant. And that, that gives, it gives one condition to, to, God, to people, which is not to murder one another. But then God promises that he will never again wipe out humanity with a flood like that. So God, in a solemn moment, is promising never to... Because of sin, even though people deserve it, even though we deserve it, he's promising never to do that again. There's a significant covenant made with Abraham, you know, over four different uh, stages, actually, in chapter Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22, a covenant with Abraham. And so now we see uh, God's people narrowed to those who descend from Abraham. And then a very significant covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments are given. And then there's a significant promise made to David, a covenant made with David, the promise of a king. David would have a king who would reign forever. And then a few centuries later, this other promise of a new covenant given to uh, the prophet Jeremiah uh, for God's people. So those are the significant divine covenants we're talking about. And then there's actually other, this covenant we're talking about today, which is the covenant of grace. It's good to think about this idea of a covenant because a covenant is a relational concept. This is a reminder that we are in relationship with God. That our, our life in this world is not some scientific process that's unfolding, some mechanistic thing that we have. There's not some contract or financial transaction we have with the Lord. It's a relationship we have with the living God. And in that relationship, it makes sense because we're creatures, sinful creatures actually, and he's the creator. It makes sense that he would define pretty specifically what this relationship is to be like. But it's, it is helpful to remember, it's a relationship we're talking about. We have a relationship with the living God. That's, that in itself is pure grace. We deserve death, we're given relationship. So last week we talked about the covenant of works from Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. So this is God speaking to uh, Adam, the first man, he says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. 
the, the threat of death for disobedience. And implied in that is the promise of life for obedience. So that's called the covenant of works because Adam's works or Adam's obedience was the condition. That's what was distinct. If he obeyed, he would be blessed. If he disobeyed, he would be killed, actually. So in Hosea 6-7, that's called a covenant. So we call it the covenant of works. Well, as we know, Adam did not obey, and the fall of humanity was the result. And so the consequences were God's punishment of the serpent, and then the woman, and then the man. So the woman, Eve, and the man, Adam. The serpent is cursed. The woman is told that childbirth will be painful and that marriage will be difficult. The man is told that the ground will be cursed and his earthly labors, his provision for his family, the farming he's he's going to do, that gardening that he was made to do, well, that will be difficult. It will be opposed. Thorns and thistles will be there that you're going to have to deal with until you return to the dust. Now, because Adam had sinned, we, he, forfeited all right to any blessing from God. Now, at that moment, all we deserved was death. God threatened death to those who disobey. Adam disobeyed. So at that moment, Adam forfeited all rights to life. But in the words that are spoken, uh, the very next words that are spoken, uh, almost, after the sin of Adam are words of hope. There's a gospel promise that God speaks. If we're wondering what's God going to do, well, this is what he does in in the response. And this is sometimes called the proto-evangelium. Theologians, when they try to impress people, they use Latin. So that's that's the phrase they came up with, the proto-evangelium. Which is kind of a cool word, but what it, just, what it means is the first gospel, proto-first evangelium gospel. It's the first gospel. This is the first gospel in our Bibles. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between, and this is uh, God speaking to the serpent, ironically. God speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now remember in the fall... The serpent tempts Eve. Eve gives into the, into the temptation. Adam eats along with her. And so in a sense, there's this very unholy alliance between Adam, Eve, and the serpent. All, all three of them against God. All three of them rejecting God's word. And if that unholy alliance had been left to continue, that would be a very bad thing for us. And so what God immediately speaks this word of grace. There will be enmity between the offspring of the woman or between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. So that's actually good news for us. So there is not an, a, a complete alliance with us and Satan. That's a good thing, isn't it? So God promises to break that in the Evangelium. But then we get this promise about her offspring. Now, it's not just Cain and Abel, her immediate offspring, and it's not just Seth, a later son that will be born to her. This is a much, 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 much later, at least in terms of human generations, a much, 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 much later offspring. But about that offspring, God says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring of the woman, who is Christ, shall bruise the head of the serpent, but that serpent shall bruise the heel of that offspring of the woman, shall bruise the heel of Christ. And so right there in the garden, 
we have this promise of Christmas. The promise of Christ coming to crush the head of the serpent. And also in it, very sober, the, darkness, the dark side of that promise, which is that he, his heel will be crushed, which is a subtle um, metaphor for the crucifixion itself. And so right there we have, in some ways, the Matthew 1 promise spoken in the Garden of Eden. But as he said, considered these things, he, Joseph's just finding out that Mary is pregnant, not by him. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. He will save his people from their sins, but he will do, he will do that by being crucified himself, because the offspring of the serpent shall bruise the heel of that offspring of the woman. Now, right there in the fall, there's the reminder that we need a mediator. And what we read in 1 Timothy 2.5, we'll come, we'll come back to this now and then later in the sermon, but 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us there's only one mediator. This offspring of the woman is one person. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, a go-between, someone to satisfy the wrath of God and someone to cover our sins. We need a mediator between us and God. And there's only one mediator, Old Testament and New Testament. There's only one mediator, and that mediator is Christ, the one who would promise to Mary, who would save his people from their sins. And what saves us, and this is the, this is the covenant of grace, that one mediator, faith in that one mediator is what saves. Well, he hadn't come yet in the Old Testament, so it can't be faith in the work he has already done. But it's faith in a mediator who is yet to come a redeemer who is yet to come, the redeemer offspring yet to come. That's what, that's what the covenant of grace is. It's hope in that and the promise of grace and salvation to all who receive it. So we can use John 3.16 as a way to capture what the covenant of grace is. So this is the covenant of grace through the lens of John 3.16. John 3.16, very familiar gospel passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So we read John 3.16 as those who are after the cross, and so we look back at that son who was crucified on the cross, and we know that faith in him is what saves us from perishing. Well, in the covenant of grace, it's the same idea, except slightly modified. For God so loved the world that he promised the redeemer offspring of Eve that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he promised the redeemer offspring of Eve that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So just a point of application before we get to our next point here. This is a wonderful, vivid picture of the love of God. You know, you can imagine here uh, a father with his child at a pool. Pools are hairy places for uh, parents and children, lots of attentive eyes always, especially if they're young children. But you can imagine that child playing at the edge of the pool, maybe in water that's too deep for the child. The child falls into the pool and panics, rightly so. But then immediately, in the blink of an eye, the father jumps in the pool and says, I've got you. I've got you. There's nothing to worry about. The father is right there, saving from 
disaster. And in some ways, that's what we have in the Garden of Eden. Humanity falls. We forfeited all rights and privileges to blessings and life and any relationship with God. And yet it's as if God just immediately says, it's okay, I've got you. Yes, there are massive consequences to the fall. However, I've got you. And the covenant of grace goes forth, this promise of life in the Son, the Son who is yet to come. That's the love of God on display. Point two, the covenant of grace from the garden to Gabriel. And now we want to just quickly trace this uh, from the Garden of Eden to, to the announcements of the birth of Christ. And here what we're tracing is this way of salvation, which is by grace through faith in the mediator. And as I said, as soon as Genesis 3.15 is spoken, this way of salvation is open to us. Apart from this way of salvation, there is the only way of salvation open, uh, that there is, is, is the way of works, perfect obedience. Well, but because of our sinful, uh, sinful natures, that can never happen. And so if there's going to be a way of salvation, it has to be through, some, through another way. And that's what we're talking about here, this way of faith, righteousness by faith. So as you trace this, we start with Adam, and we'll just, we'll just cover the era from Adam to Abraham. That's, that's a lot of centuries wrapped up there, but in our Bibles, that just takes us from chapter 3 in Genesis to chapter 12 in Genesis. But we're going to look at that era through the lens of the book of Hebrews, New Testament book of Hebrews. And what we see there is that their faith is like our faith. What they receive by faith is what we receive by faith. So the author of Hebrews tells us that by faith, Abel, so one of the first two sons born in human history. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, his brother. And we're going to talk about Cain and Abel next week because it's Christmas. That's what we talk about every Christmas. Cain and Abel. <laughs> yes. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, acceptable to God. Reconciled with God, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And we fast forward to Enoch a few generations later. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. But remember the beginning of that sentence. By faith... Enoch was taken up. By faith, Enoch was taken up. And then we fast forward a few more generations to Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he, commend, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. His faith is like our faith. The faith of Abel, the faith of Enoch is like our faith. They were righteous by faith. Sometimes what's recorded is their good works. But those, those good works weren't near enough for them to be righteous by their works. It was their faith that made them righteous. And in that righteous, righteous, uh, righteousness-giving faith, they walked out in good works that followed that. So that's a, a quick snapshot of Adam to Abraham. And now we get to Abraham himself. The, the, the next significant covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. 
The next significant era is the Abrahamic era. So this is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So this takes us from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50, the patriarchs. The first promise we want to see is Genesis 22, 18. God speaking to Abraham after he's given up Isaac to, to be sacrificed. God says to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Well, that offspring, who is the offspring of Abraham? Well, we, the very first sentence of our New Testament, Matthew 1.1, tells us that Jesus the Christ is the son of Abraham, the son of David. This, the, the offspring through which all the nations would be blessed is Christ. And so that the, 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 the broad promise given to Eve in the garden about your offspring shall crush the head of the serpent is now narrowing. It's not the son of any old nation. It's going to be the son in the, in the nation of Abraham, that race of people. It's going to follow him. It's going to be one of his descendants. And then we fast forward to Galatians chapter 3, where, where Paul, still talking about Abraham. Now this is Paul looking back on Abraham and holding Abraham up as a model for us. This is the same faith. This is the faith we're trying to emulate. So he says in Galatians 3, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, quoting Genesis 15, 6. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations, in you shall all the nations be blessed. We Gentiles, who are not physical sons, physical offspring of Abraham. Well, by faith, we are the children of Abraham. We receive the promises that were given to him. And then, still speaking of Abraham, this is in the teaching of Jesus, John chapter 8. Jesus says, your father Abraham, so speaking to Jews who were, who were antagonistic in this moment, this is a, this is a this is huge boxing match in, in, uh, between Jesus and the Pharisees in John chapter 8. And he, he says to them, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham's faith was a forward-looking faith in Christ. No, he didn't have all the details about being born to Mary and things like that. But there was a, a hope in Christ. He rejoiced to see the day of Christ. Their faith is like our faith. That's the covenant of grace. That the framework of salvation is faith in that Redeemer and, and what that brings to us. So we fast forward now to the book of Exodus. And this is where the covenant with Moses is made, or the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. Again, we'll, we'll see this through the lens of Hebrews. We tend to think of, of Moses and, and associate Moses with laws, not inappropriate. There are hundreds of laws that are given to Moses to give to the people. And if we, if we get confused or misread the, our Bibles, we miss the gospel message that's there. Even in the law, even in the law of Moses, the gospel message is there. And that's what, that's what we want to see here with this verse from Hebrews 4. He's thinking about the Israelites in the wilderness, and he says, Good news came to us, us uh, this, that's the, the generation of the author of Hebrews, first, generation, first century of the church. For good news came to us just as to them back in the wilderness. Gospel came to us, gospel came to them. 
but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They needed to respond to the good news with faith, just like we need to respond to the good news with faith. That's what we're talking about with the covenant of grace. It's the same framework of salvation. Then we fast forward to the great king, Israel's greatest king, David. Heroic failures, and nonetheless, Israel's greatest king. And David has promised, you will have a son who will reign forever. In 2 Samuel 7, you will have a son who will reign forever. And we know that to be the son, the son of David, we know to be Jesus Christ. That's the king that would reign forever. But in the time of David, in the time of the kings, we also learn that the covenant of grace saved then in the same way that it saves now. And this is from the book of Romans, chapter 4. And to the one who does not work, does not practice perfect works of obedience... And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So David writes, and this is quoting from the Psalms, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Praise God. And the key, the key thing there is you're not blessed because of your perf- perfect obedience. You're blessed because your imperfect and very disobedient lives are covered in the forgiveness of Christ. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. If we're expecting to come before God without any sin, we will be greatly disappointed on that day of judgment. We have untold thousands of sins that we we commit. We know better and yet we continue to sin. But blessed are those, blessed are those who trust in him who justifies the ungodly. That's the covenant of grace. So even in the time of David and the kings, that same covenant of grace is evident. Fast forward a little bit to the time of Jeremiah. Dark time in the history of Israel. The captivity is underway. And yet it's during this time of of darkness that we see one of the most brilliant lights shine down, this promise of a new covenant. And the new covenant is really the covenant of grace in slightly more detail. So it's a, there's a sense in which it's new and not new. But this is the great new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. Old covenant, tablets of stone handed to them, very external. New covenant, the law is written on our hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall... Each one teaches neighbor and, know, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. 
These promises are true for, for some people in the Old Testament. And what God is telling us here is they will be true for all people uh, who are in Christ in the new covenant. God will be our God. We shall be his people. We shall have his law written on our hearts, which means a new power to obey the law. We will know the Lord, the greatest. That's, that's eternal life, Jesus says. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the living God. And our sins forgiven. And remember, no more. The Bible is a complicated book. It is. If you've read it for any length of time, you know that to be true. Prophets, famously difficult to interpret. There are many passages you're not going to understand in this life, maybe never. But it's helpful to remember that through, the, through that complexity, there is this simplicity. That gospel message, that covenant of grace message is there through the whole storyline. That promise of life, blessing to those who trust in the mercy of God, it's there always. No matter how bleak the era is that you're reading about, that promise remains true. And no matter how overconfident and how maybe optimistic things look, that promise remains true. Only for those who trust in the mercy of God is there life and blessing. That's the covenant of grace that we're talking about. So all of these, these different Old Testament eras from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to, the, to Christ, they all have that same basic covenant of grace gospel message. There is, there is mercy available. There is life available to those who trust in the mercy of God. Point three, the covenant of grace and the advent of Christ. So when you turn from the last page of, of Malachi to the first page of Matthew, you're turning from anticipation to fulfillment. Not final fulfillment. I mean, in some ways, we, like those Old Testament saints, are waiting for something yet to happen. We've experienced the first advent of Christ, and we're waiting for the second advent of Christ. We've experienced regeneration and life in Christ, but we're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth where all traces of sin are gone, removed from our lives. But nonetheless, when we turn from the end of the Old Testament to our New Testament, we turn to a whole new day of fulfillment. That future Redeemer that they were anticipating, well, he's come. His name is Jesus Christ. We know where he lives. We know where he was born. We know what he's going to do throughout his life. We know what he's going to do to save us. He's not just going to declare us forgiven. He's going to be crucified and then declare all those who believe in him forgiven. A lot of places we can turn, but in the prophecy that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, speaks, we see this, this tie-in to our, all of these Old Testament anticipations that we've been thinking about. A reminder that our, our, our Old Testament, New Testament, it's, it's one book, it's one story, this story of, of grace, this story of, of life in God. So Zechariah, you know, if, if you recall, he's been mute for a long time, mute for many months. He, he didn't believe the, the angel Gabriel when Gabriel promised uh, to uh, give to Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist. He's been mute for a long time, and suddenly he can speak. John the Baptist has been born. And so he puts this wonderful 
theological perspective. You know, these are, these are uh, gospel lenses of the right kind, interpretive lenses of the right kind to help us see our Old Testament. So he says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. What's well, Jesus, right? Jesus is the son of David. He's the horn of salvation. He is the, the warrior, champion, savior to the people of God. So he's raised up this horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Probably thinking about the Abrahamic covenant at that point. That promise to Abraham that you will have a people, a nation, and a land, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, that fulfillment is in Christ. Christ came, and now, and that's God remembering his covenant, spoken centuries before that. So to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. That's a man who knows his Bible, and he, he knows what time it is, you might say. He sees John the Baptist. He knows of the, of, the, of the imminent birth of Christ. The birth of Christ hasn't happened yet, but he knows it's about to happen. John the Baptist is the older cousin of Jesus, and so he knows that the fulfillment is here. All those promises in the covenants are coming to pass. Well, now we can think about this 1 Timothy 2.5 moment. This reminder that there's only one mediator. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament, there's one mediator. There are shadows and types of this mediator in the Old Testament. All those sacrifices in the Old Testament are just a picture of the one mediator, Jesus Christ, and the work he must do to save us. The man, Jesus Christ, that's the one mediator. I'll I'll close Uh, this point with a quote from John Murray in his his book, The Covenant of Grace. The mediator of the new covenant is none other than God's own Son, the effulgence of the Father's glory and the express image of his substance, the heir of all things. He is its surety also. And because there can be no higher mediator or surety than the Lord of glory, since there can be no sacrifice more transcendent in its efficacy, in finality than the sacrifice of him who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot unto God, this covenant cannot give place to another. Grace and truth, promise and fulfillment have in this covenant received their, their pleroma, their fullness. And, and, and it is in terms of the new covenant that it will be said, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them. That's the covenant of grace accomplished, fully accomplished. Quoting from Revelation 21 there. Let me just read that. This is the first first few verses of Revelation 21. And this is where we we stand shoulder to shoulder with the Old Testament saints. They were anticipating a, a Redeemer Messiah. Well, he's come. But we still stand with them seeking a city which has yet to be revealed. 
lot of pages in this Bible. Revelation 21, so then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the hope to come. That's what, in a sense, Eden was supposed to be, dwelling with God with no tears, no sadness, no death, no mourning, only endless life and happiness, joy, as we heard from the prophecy, Mike, endless joy with God. Well, it's coming. It is coming. It is. We, we anticipate the second advent of Christ when he breaks through the clouds and then the new heavens, the judgment, and then the new heavens and new earth to follow. We are anticipating that. And that's the real accomplishment, the final accomplishment of the covenant of grace. So the covenant of grace and the miracle of Christmas. So in that place where death and sadness should have happened, and it did happen, and yet still with that death and sadness, the gospel, light. You know, in that place of darkness, this light just shone on the scene. You know, it's God the Father saying, I've got you. Humanity will not be destroyed. I've got you. Believe in my mercy and live with me forever. So this gospel, this good news, this is the covenant of grace. It's a commitment by God to save all those who trust in him for his mercy. We trust in that redeemer offspring. Not like the Old Testament saints who anticipated a future redeemer offspring, but we look back to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the redeemer offspring. So praise God for the glory of the gospel. There, there is no way this is the invention of men. No, this is the glory of God on display for us. And praise God for the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of it. Believe in Christ and you will be saved. Believe in Christ and you will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the covenant of grace. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel. A hope that even, even in the darkest, of our, darkest days of our lives is still there. Just like in in the middle of the night. The sun is still shining even though we can't see it. And in ferocious thunderstorms, we can't see the sun, but it's there. And in the darkest days of our lives, we're more aware of our losses than our possession, more aware of our sadnesses than our joys. Lord, your gospel is there. So we do pray for hope for those who 
maybe right now are feeling hopeless, I pray that you would, you would give them fresh hope, Lord. There is grace. There is grace. Grace for the taking. There is grace today and there's grace in the future. And there's a fullness of grace to come. Lord, would you give them faith in that grace? Your generosity has not stopped in their lives. It is continuing to pour out grace in their lives. Would you give them hope, Lord, where they are hopeless? For those battling sin, we pray, Lord, that you would give them hope. Hope in Christ. A hope that gives them new power to obey and turn from their sins and walk in obedience. We aren't saved by our works, but you do call us to good works, Lord. And so we pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would work in us, that we might live lives of good works, that we might be zealous for good works. And then this month, Lord, as we, we have Christmas parties with our neighbors and our coworkers and see family, as you bring those gospel uh, conversations, we pray that we would be faithful to, in some way, testify that, yes, Yes, Jesus is alive. He is my Savior. And I'm alive because of him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.